0: scripture reading will be from 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20, I'm going to read a few verses at the beginning and then skip a little later to the chap- later in the chapter. For 1 Samuel 20 verse 1, Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me And death. And then in verse 12, then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, shall I not send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to you to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away. That you may go in safety, and may the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. And if I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord, that I may not die? And, y- and you shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. And Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you, O God, that you would minister to our hearts, speak to us as you know we need, that Christ would be exalted within us, and that we would would live, Lord, before you in dependence and in faith and obedience, God, loving you as you are to be loved. We thank you, God, for your heart for us. And I do pray, Lord, that you would be exalted in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it seems like forever since um, we were in 1 Samuel. Um, took a couple of weeks off um, before and after Christmas and um, to speak on other things. And then last week I was in Florida not at the beach, as John um, said. Never even saw the beach while I was there. But um, speaking to a bunch of kids there at a church in Jacksonville, um, so it's good to be back. Um, I also am aware that I um, have failed to um, to give recognition to the two new couples that we have in our church. They being Mark and Audrey Griggs, and Todd and Rachel. Granger over here. So congratulations to our new newly couples. appreciate them both very much. And in case you have not heard, you probably should have, would have, but um, Leonard Franklin, who has been a part of this church for many years, went home to be with the Lord, um, and his memorial service was on Monday. He was 91 years old. Um, and I want to use Leonard's story a little bit to to move into the text here in First Timothy, First Samuel, chapter twenty. Um, though I have known um, the Franklin family for many years, in fact, I first met them when I was um, junior high, high school age, down in Corpus, um, and they were living there. Transferred out, transferred back, and. Um, I didn't get to know Mary and Leonard during that time, but, but I was good friends with um, one of their daughters who was best friend of one of my friends in high school. And um, um, But when they retired to this area and started coming to this church, they have just been remarkable friends and, um, and so supportive of this church fellowship in so many ways. But Leonard um, was, in my estimation, thinking back over his life and the years that I've known him. Probably one of the most other-centered people I've ever known, um, constantly on the alert for people's needs and and how he could pray for them or help them in other ways. I don't. I mean, it's just remarkable, you know, um, how how active he was in thinking about other people and their needs. But all the more remarkable when you consider um, his early childhood and his upbringing. And the, his mother died when he was 10 years old, and she was a very solid believer. His dad remarried two months later and was an alcoholic and promptly lost his job and was unable to support his family. And so Leonard was shipped off to, to different family members um, 10 times in the next um, few years, in eight years. In eight years' time, custody over him changed 10 times. In his high school years, he lived in five different states. It's pretty amazing. And then to consider, you know, um, the life that he lived in Christ, the other-centeredness, the love for people, the commitment to them. um, It's really just a story of God's redemptive power. It's not a story of an individual overcoming Bad circumstances. I mean, Leonard would be the first to say that, that, that nothing good in his life came because of his own willpower. It was the grace of God. And God was at work um, preserving him, redeeming him as he is in each of our lives. And he was really just a, another example, as we have many around us, of God literally at work um, to bring people into greater conformity to Christ and to really bless them as only God can do. I want to use that as a backdrop here because the last time we were looking at 1 Samuel, we started out by um, one of the, the last message was when David had just killed, John, um, killed Goliath and then came to Jonathan's attention because Jonathan was listening to David say to Saul who he was and how he was able to kill this giant. And Jonathan began to, to love David at that time, and his, his soul was wed to him. And the reason being is because they shared the same heart, the same love for the Lord, and the reality of, of that he was alive and well, and, and that there's no greater um, way to live life than, than loving God and being under the control of God's love. And David and Jonathan were two men cut out of the same cloth in that respect. But that passage was not only about how God wants to, to make us Jonathans and to bring Jonathans into our life, but also there are giants in this world. David had two that he faced. Not only was it Goliath, but also Saul. And those giants are those people who, who um, are not on God's team, as it were. They are not lovers of God. They are openly hostile to God and His ways. They are people who maybe profess quite openly they hate God and want nothing to do with Him and hate those who walk with Him. We will all come across people like that. Jonathans who just love us with all their being because of the affinity that they feel toward us in Christ. And others who hate us with all their being because they, whether they can spot it or not, put, put words to it or not, because of the spiritual dynamic that's going on and the spiritual conflict that's there. But the giants aren't really the biggest problem we face. They're easy, in one sense, because they're there. and you just, you know, We know what we're facing when people just are openly hostile and antagonistic to us because of our faith. The bigger problems are those people that I liken to the germs. And I made the illustration that not all that many people have been killed by giants. But millions of people have been killed by germs. And, um, and they can be the more subtle and dangerous enemy. The germ in David's life initially was the woman that he married. And he didn't marry her apparently because he loved her. And it was Saul's daughter. He married her because he apparently thought that it would ingratiate him to Saul. By becoming Saul's son-in-law, he would be less likely to be killed by Saul. And she loved David, but um, she didn't really have a whole heart for God. And that's the danger. People who love us, but don't have a whole heart for God. Tremendous danger. They are the ones. They are not enemies. But because they're not enemies, they can be all the more dangerous than the giants. Loving us... Committed to us, but they don't have the Lord's interest in mind. This is what Jesus said about Peter in Matthew 16, if you recall. Peter had just given that wonderful profession when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And then he asked his own disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who who is in heaven has made this known to you. And we all clap for Peter. He right? Good boy, Peter. You got A on that test. And then right after that, Jesus begins to tell them plainly, the Messiah must suffer and die and rise again from the dead. And Peter pulls him aside and says, Lord, no. God doesn't want this for you. Those were his words. This is not what God wants for you. And, and Jesus stops him and says, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your interest on the things of God, but on the interest of man. The germs. Right? And there was a sense in which Jesus was, was more in danger of his own disciples who loved him and who would lay down their lives for him than he was of the Herods, who were openly hostile to him. We have to be careful of those people that we love and who love us, who may be setting their interest on the things of man rather than the things of God. I've said many times before, as a parent, this is a constant temptation in our lives that we have to check. We have to make sure as parents, as we sense God working in the lives of our children, that we do not get in the way of God. And begin to say, well, yes, I know you love God, and it's a good thing to love God, but do you really need to go off to that unaccredited Bible school? What good is that going to do to you for you? Right? Honestly, I think my dad would tell you this. The only reason I went to Bible school, and he was okay with it when I got out of high school, because he raised us to go to college and get a job, and he was going to break our plate, and we were on our own. And that's not all bad, but the reason that I went to Bible school was because of an older brother who had leukemia and didn't know how much longer he had to live, and he wanted to spend whatever weeks or months he had left seeking to know the Lord. And my dad thought it'd be a good idea if I went with him in case, he went, um, in, in case the leukemia came back and, and he came out of remission, and it would be good to have a family member there with him. And so we went to Bible school. And though we were Christians, it was a very impactful, transformative year in our lives. And when we came home at Christmas, I'll never forget my dad saying, Everybody else is going to one of those torchbearer Bible schools. Four younger siblings. And they didn't have any choice. When they graduated from high school, they all went off to Bible school. I just say that as just one illustration. That's a simple thing. But again, when God is working in people's lives that we love, it doesn't always look practical, expedient. It can look foolish as they seek to respond to him. And we can play the enemy of God in other people's lives by undermining, in our love for people, what God is wanting to do. And The reason I've, I have I'm portraying this characterization about David's wife, and I may be absolutely wrong, and I'll apologize to her in heaven. Um, it's because she kept an idol in the house, and when David ran, she put that idol in David's bed and dressed it up as though it were David, so that the enemies would think that David was still in the house when he wasn't. Most historians don't believe it was David's idol, but it was his wife's. A woman who loved him, but whose heart wasn't pure toward the Lord. And that can happen to any of us. We can all be that kind of person in the hearts and lives of someone who is seeking God. So that's our review. And then chapter 20... Jonathan comes back on the scene. And as we just read, David comes to Jonathan and says, Jonathan, what have I done? That your dad is hounding me with all that he has in him to kill me. And Jonathan's going, what are you talking about? My dad doesn't hate you like that. And David goes, oh yeah, he does. And then David says, makes this statement at the end of verse 3. He says, there is hardly a step between me and death. In one sense, that's true. But in another, you know, that's true of all of us all the time. But do we live that way? No. But we have an enemy, the scripture says, who is seeking our lives, seeking whom he may devour. All the time. So there's a sense in which in each of us, every single day, there is hardly a step between us and death. But we don't live in fear. In fact, we typically don't even give any thought to it. And I would like to think it's because we know our lives are in the hands of God. And so we don't have to live feeling hounded or pursued, live in fear, even though we have an enemy, as Martin Luther said, who is, who is so great that there is nothing we can do against him. But he also says from the Lord Jesus, one small word Shall fell him, Amen. So we don't have to live in this panic, but David is beginning to think the whole world is against him, and that his life is crumbling and coming to an end. One author, Alan Redpath, um, used to be with Torchbearers. He was one of the principal teachers at Capernary Hall in England many years ago, and then later became the, the pastor of, of Moody Bibles um, of um, Moody Church in Chicago. <coughs> And he, he wrote a, a commentary on First and Second Samuel focusing on the life of David and called it The Making of a Man of God. That's a great title. And really, it's, it, this, this is one of the key points where God is doing that. This is where God is beginning to kick all the props out of David's life. All of them. And David is soon just going to be a man alone. And he has nothing to trust in but God. And along the way of getting there, it isn't all that pretty. And here, David is beginning to show that panic and that sense of self-preservation that is satanic in its origin. Never comes from God. Didn't enter this world until sin entered this world. I must preserve myself. I must do whatever it takes to survive. It's not how God intends us to live. So Jonathan refutes it, but then he says, I'll go find out. And so he goes and finds out from his dad. But before we get to that point even, which is really back in, over in verse 30, I had us read this morning 12 to 17, where they are renewing, or some would say forming a second covenant, or at least renewing an initial covenant. The amazing thing about this, if you read it carefully, Jonathan is saying, I know that you will be king. Verse, again, the end of verse 13. Verse 13. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Jonathan is very clearly saying, I know you will be the next king. As God has been with my father, the king, may may he be with you when you become king. Well, that raises an interesting problem. If David becomes king and he is of a different tribe than the sitting king, And they were of different tribes. Saul was from Benjamin. David was from Judah. It would be the firm, fixed expectation, even demand, that David assassinates everybody that was from the other tribe who could possibly want to be king. It would be so strong, so compelling, that David would feel that he had no option. But his first day in office to assassinate Jonathan and all of his family. And Jonathan knows it. And that's what this covenant is about. That's why he's saying in verse 15, and you shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the, house, from the face of the earth. That's what this is about. David, I love you. And I've already told you, I think you should be king. But I know... The day you become king, they're going to be expecting you to sign an executive order for my execution. And I'm asking you, I am demanding that you promise me today that when you become king, you will resist all the pressure to execute me and my family. And David easily says, absolutely I'll do that. I will readily enter into that covenant. Why was this so easy for David? He knew he's going to be facing incredible, compelling forces. Kill them all. You're a fool if you don't. And David says, done. Not a problem. How can a man that easily resist culture and all that is demanding, treating you like a fool if you don't do what the culture is saying? It's easy. There's a greater love. David loved his friend more than he loved what culture was going to tell him. We are all driven by what we love most. That's just a fact. And, you, and you, we may say, I love Jesus, but look at a person, how we live. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll, you'll keep my commandments. It's not even, and, and Jesus says concerning himself, my, I do everything my father says, and his, burden, his commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because he loved his father. That's why. Things are, the commandments of God are burdensome when we don't love God. I am no paragon of virtue. And so the few times that I've been virtuous, I remember them. <laughs> and I have it in my own personal book of virtue. It's a real thin book. It's not very big. I was working for the gravel pit where the rim is now, many years ago. And I worked for the asphalt division there. And all the men I worked with were pretty raunchy guys in their estimation. I actually liked the guys and had good relationships with them. And, and just God's orchestrating of events. Um, I was 20 years old, and, and, um, and I drove onto the property for the first time, and I remember just, just bowing Across the, the steering wheel of my car and saying, "God, I thank you. You've gone before me." And the Lord just gave me a great open door for ministry in the months that I worked there. Very cold winter that year, uncharacteristic to what Texas normally has. And my job was to sit in the little control operating room and and learn how to make asphalt, which I never did. I, I you know it just was a button that said automatic, and everything starts happening. You know. I, <laughs> But I was being paid well, learning how to make asphalt. But all these other guys, there would be seven or eight of them, and they were being paid to be outside, but they didn't like it because it was cold. So they would sit inside the control operator's room and sit around and talk and tell their raunchy stories and jokes and things. And, and I would just ask God for the grace not to laugh along with them. And so they would say, um, why aren't you laughing? i said, you don't want to know. They Yeah, we do. We want to know. What do you think about this? Trust me, you don't want to know. And so they'd pull, and so we'd spend. And I would say, I I I say I'm a Christian, and and this is not honoring to the Lord. I love Jesus more. And they're just going, wow. We worked nine-hour shifts, and I would spend four or five hours a day talking to these men about Jesus. I never had any, I never initiated the conversation. They wanted to know. Never had any experience like that. Well, after a couple of months of that. They said, one of these days, Charlie, you're going to be told to go over to the number one asphalt plant. And that guy that works at that plant, nobody wants to work with him. You think we're bad? He's way worse than we are. And I'm going, oh, great. And then they said, but he does like to fish. So, if you know, maybe talk to him about fishing when you're over there, because nothing else is going to be good coming out of his mouth. And so I go over there one day. Sure enough, I'm sent over there by myself, and, and I go up into the control room. And he's got his back to me, working the control panel, just switching the automatic switch, I guess. And, and, um, and so he, I just sit down on the desk, and, and he flips a magazine over to me and says, Here, look at this. I'll be with you in a minute. And so um, it, it, uh, he, it hit me you know, on the desk face down, and it was all rod and reels, fishing equipment. You know. And I'm going, Oh, good, sports magazine. And I flip it over, hardcore pornography. Oh, my word. And so I threw it back down on the desk with, you know, face down. Well, he was looking at me, and I didn't know it. He was just kind of watching me out of the corner of his eye. And when I threw it down, he did a complete 180, and, um, and he puts his hands on his hips, and he looks at me, and he smirks, and he goes, what's wrong? Don't like it? So you know what he's insinuating. And I'm going, oh, thank you, Lord. What do I do now? <laughs> Your whole life flashes before you in just a few seconds. Lying's not an option. The truth is, I'm a man, and I do like that stuff. And I can't lie about it. How can I honor Jesus and lie about something like that? And so I said, I do like it, but I love Jesus Christ more than that stuff. And because of my love for him, I'm not going to look at it. You thought I'd hit the man with a baseball bat. I'm telling you, he went slack. And he, and he, and he, and he goes, what? And he goes, I have never heard that from anybody. I don't know God like that, but I would like to. And we spent the rest of that nine-hour shift talking about Jesus and how to know him. What brought that out of me? A greater love. That's all it was. I didn't go over there that day saying, today I'm going to stand against evil. I'm going to fight God's battles for him. Just went over there in the love of Christ, loving him, responding to him, not knowing what I was going to face, but dreading it. And, and, and just responding out of the love of Christ. And, and this is what David's doing here. He's going to be powerful forces, his first day as king, that are going to say, David, we're telling you. And we and this is, should be kind of resonate with us because we've got a new president. And he's got powerful forces telling him what he needs to do his first 100 days in office. Wouldn't it be earth-shattering to have a new president who would say, my first days in office will be governed by my love for Jesus Christ. And David is going to say that to his friends who are saying, we only have your best interest in mind. If you let Jonathan and his family live, they, you will have a constant area where you could be undermined. It will be viewed as weakness. People are going to gather around them. You would be a fool not to kill him. And David is just going to go, This is not a difficult choice. I love him. And I will risk him betraying me. Don't really think he will. Don't think there's much risk involved. But I love him. And I've made a a covenant with him. And that covenant is not going to be broken. Period. Good for you, David. So then the rest of the chapter, it it, it all pans out exactly as David knew it would. Jonathan goes back to his dad and says in verse 30, And Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Now, from what I've read in my study, the New American Standard, which I'm reading from, is usually pretty accurate and, and to the point. But what I've been told is Saul has just cursed his son with the most vile curse that a father could give to his son. And the New American Standard doesn't do it justice. He has just cussed his son out. Vile. And then verse 31, for as long as the son of Jesse lives, he won't even call him David and he's his son-in-law. David is his son-in-law. As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. And just to show how insane and irrational his rage is, when Jonathan answers him and says, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Saul hurls his own spear at him, the one he's supposed to be just, that he just said, I'm trying to protect your own right to the throne. You'll never be king. And then he tries to kill him. That's just insanity. So it tells us that his his interest here, his vested interest, was not in preserving the throne for his son. Jonathan's Saul is only thinking about himself. And he tried to murder his own son. The end of verse 34, his father had disowned, dishonored him. And then Jonathan goes and they had a prearranged signal. Jonathan would shoot arrows and have a little boy go and retrieve the arrows and if things were not favorable toward David, he would tell the boy, keep going further, keep going further. And so and that's what Jonathan did. And then he gave his, his bow and arrows to the little boy and told him to go back to the city. And then David and Jonathan came together and wept over each other. It says in verse 41, When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and they wept together, but David more because all the props are being kicked out. And he knew it. And Jonathan said to David, Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be be between me and you, between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he arose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. David wept more. Part of the reason he was weeping more was because he was losing a friend. Best friend he will ever have. But part of the reason was also because in losing Jonathan, he was losing everything. This was his one point of maybe things will be okay. I'm the king's son-in-law. I'm the brother-in-law to the king's son. And the brother-in-law loves me and is committed to me. He was the anchor point. And God says, we need to get rid of that anchor point. And God has cut David loose now. Not from himself, but from everything that he could possibly trust in. It's gone. And now, how will David respond? Where will he go? Will we see the man of God that we know that he is? In chapter 21... Is a disappointment. It is a disappointment. And David, having been cut loose from every security, every rock in his life has been removed. His first response is probably no different than what it would be for any of us. But as we move through, even as we get to chapter 23, 22 and 23, David is getting his bearings. And he's He's coming back and he's beginning to, to truly trust God as he's never trusted him before and to seek God as he's never sought him before. But in chapter 21, he's a mess. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, He lies. The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter in which I am sending you and in which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young man to a certain place. And now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread and whatever whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said... There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is the consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, "Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I went out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was ordinary journey. How much more now, when the journey? uh, How much more today will the vessels be holy?" So the priest gave him the consecrated bread. But there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put in hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. And David said to Ahimelech, Now is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me. Another lie, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no no other except it here. And David said, there is none like it, give it to me. This is not good. There is never an excuse for lying. He is seeking to preserve his life. This is the deal. David is the anointed future king of Israel. First John says, every Christian has received an anointing from God. So there's a parallel here. David was anointed. We have received an anointing. And there's a lot of debate about what that anointing is that John speaks about in 1 John. I think he's just simply talking about we have been anointed, blessed with Christ. We have Christ. He is the anointing we have received. But wherever we go with it, the interesting thing is the next verse, where he says, we have all received an anointing, but we must continually abide in Him. Well, so what he's telling us is, whatever it is that we receive when we receive that anointing, It was never intended that we live from that one present, that one past experience, but that we live in continual dependence upon Christ. David is the anointed king, but David's having to learn something. Just because you've been anointed and you have this position now that you didn't have before, just as we have a position that we did not have before we came into Christ, we are in Christ and Christ is in us. David is anointed, he's been brought into a position that he didn't have before. That may be true, but now David's having to learn you need to trust God every day, every moment. There's never going to be, if you, and David's going to see this worked out dramatically in ways that he wishes he could take back. There's no excuse for not trusting God, for resorting to the flesh. To preserving your life, doing whatever it takes to survive. Maybe you'll lie, maybe you'll fudge, maybe you'll cheat. After all, God, you know what else I'm supposed to do? And maybe God says to us, What's so bad about dying? So, what if you died? Isn't absent from the body present with the Lord? You really gonna forfeit your integrity for a piece of bread? See, that's what David's doing. He is forfeiting his integrity for bread. I used to think when I was younger and go to the movie, you know, you pay one price to get in and you've got 12 different movies to pick from, but you only paid for one of them. Who's going to know? After that movie's over, you just spend the rest of the day hopping around going to the other movies. Who's going to know? Is it really going to bankrupt the movie theater? Ah. You see, that's the price of my integrity if I do that. The price of a movie ticket. Really, you'd sell your integrity for a $9 movie ticket. So that's the price tag on your honesty. And David's price tag for his honesty and integrity are a few loaves of bread. doesn't say much. But again, the greatest love is what controls us. And right now, David's greatest love is for himself, the preservation of his life, not the honor of his God. You know what the consequence of this decision is? Lying, taking this bread, taking Goliath's sword. This guy Doeg, in the next chapter, chapter 22, Saul's going, Why won't somebody tell me where David is? Why is everybody here betraying me? And Doag says, excuse me, I happen to have seen him recently. He was in Nob with Ahimelech. And Ahimelech gave him bread and gave him a sword. Bring Ahimelech here. And every member of his household. So 86 people showed up. And Saul says, you guys are plotting against me. You're undermining me. And Ahimelech's going, he's your son-in-law. He is faithful to you. I have regularly given him counsel. What have I done wrong? And so Saul, being out of his mind like he is, says, I know that you're plotting and you're lying. And he says, kill them all, all the priests. And none of, David, none of Saul's soldiers would do it. They're going, no way. But Doeg, Saul says, you do it. And Doeg gets his sword and slaughters 85 men. One of the young men escaped and went to David and told him what had happened. None of those men would have died if David had just told the truth. Maybe the priest would have had to say, I can't give you the bread. Would David have really starved? If the priest had sent him away, do you think that he would have starved? And at the end of chapter 22, look what it says. Skip over to chapter 22, verse 22. Then David said to Abathar, this is the only survivor, one of the sons of Ahimelech. David said to Abathar, I knew on that day that Doag the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. It's my fault. You're right, David. Stay with me, and do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, for you are safe with me. And then right after this, when he leaves, da- leaves Nob, he go- guess where he goes? He's got Goliath's sword strapped to his side. I don't know how he can walk. but he's got Goliath's sword, and guess where David goes? To Goliath's hometown. David, what are you thinking? I mean, really, of all the places on the planet you could go with Goliath's sword, you go to Goliath's hometown of Gath? That's what he does in verse 8. And David said to him, like, now there's no spear or sword on hand, for I have brought neither my sword nor weapon, give it to me. And then, then verse 10, David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Oh, my word. But the servants of of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of Israel? King of the land, did he not sing? Did they not sing as one as they danced before him? Saul has slain our thousands, David has killed his ten thousands. And David took their words to heart and would greatly fear it, Achish, king of Gath. And he disguised his sanity before them and he acted insanely in their hands and he scribbled on the doors of the gate and he's let the lava run down his beard. What else is a man of God supposed to do? Isn't it sad? Now he has lost all personal dignity. See, David knew in this culture they didn't kill insane people. They considered it bad luck. And so they just let him live. And so David says, the only way I'm going to get out of this Philistine town, which is the town of Goliath, whom I've killed, is just to act like I'm nuts. And it worked. So what's so bad about that? Because he wasn't trusting God. And David will write another psalm. See, this is the thing. These these passages here in 1 and 2 Samuel, they're just loaded with connecting psalms. Where we can read the psalms and say, David went to Nob and lied. There's a psalm about that. David went down to to the king of Gath. There's a psalm about that. And, And then Doeg... There's a psalm about that. There are three psalms written about this one chapter of Scripture. And in them, David's going, I've got a lot of enemies. But I ultimately ended up trusting God. Amen. God is going to use David trying to do it on his own. Protecting his own life, whatever it takes. God will use it to show him it doesn't work. You need to trust me. And by the time we get to chapter 23, David is doing nothing without asking God first. Radical, radical change that begins to take place. David didn't need to go to the king of Gath. He didn't need to disguise his sanity. None of this was necessary. We're going to see that God is going to start instructing him by a prophet, Prophet Gad in chapter 23. The end of chapter 23, Saul is coming around one side of a hill to get David. David's running around the other side as fast as he can to get away. And it's impossible for David to escape. And then Saul receives a message saying, Oh, your people are being attacked in another part. And Saul's going, Man, I got to leave. I got to go defend my nation. God did that. All through these next chapters, God is working. To defend David and protect David, and he's not having to lie or act insane or run to his enemies. He will fortunately never again dishonor the Lord or dishonor himself as he did in chapter 21, where he is seeking to preserve his own life, whatever it takes. God was at work working in him to bring him to a greater trust and dependency upon him. He's doing that in all of us. God is tailor-making circumstances to kick out the prompts where the only thing we have is to trust in him. Against incredible odds, impossible situations, and we are all sorely tempted to just survive do whatever it takes to make it out of this when God wants us to come to Him and trust Him. Again, that's one of the things I so much appreciated in seeing about Leonard Franklin and all that God allowed to come into his life in those early years. Impossible situation. But he trusted in the Lord and could see God deliver him and God work in him redemptively wasn't perfect, and God wasn't finished. He is now. Because the Lord says, when we see him in glory, we shall be like him. Until that time, God is working in us just like he was David. That we might trust him more fully. And that God would be honored in every aspect of our lives. Let me pray.